Thank you, worship team, and thank you, Janae and Caitlin. I, uh, I love the words of that song that they just sang for us. Um, it reminds me of really what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks as we've been going through Ephesians here at Crosswinds uh, during Advent. just reminds us of the cosmic significance of the Christmas story, that this is not just something that uh, started uh, 2,000 years ago, but honestly, it was a part of God's plan uh, from the very beginning of time and even before time began. And uh, we've been reminding ourselves of that over and over uh, this Christmas season. And, and honestly, the most important thing that we could do this Christmas, as we celebrate Christmas this year, is to, to look at Jesus, to look at the, the child in the manger as the one who can heal every hurt, the one who can address and right every single wrong facing you, uh, the one who will give everlasting joy to whoever, are found, uh, to whoever is found in him, and honestly, to also bring everlasting glory to his father. And that's the incredible nature of this little baby. It's something that is uh, described, as, as I just mentioned, by the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. Uh, but it's also described and prophesied before Jesus was born, uh, when the angel Gabriel appeared to his mother Mary and told him or told her that she was going to bear a child. Uh, Gabriel said these words in Luke chapter 1. He, being Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. This evening I want to just look at that text and consider three different promises that the angel makes to Mary about who Jesus will be. The angel starts in these two verses by declaring that this child yet to come, this part of God's plan from before time began, will be great. And that's something that doesn't seem all that unusual to us. After all, we readily profess that Jesus is great. We can testify to his greatness and his power over sin. We can testify to his greatness and his power over death. We can testify to his greatness and the, the fact that he is in charge of every single facet of our lives and on and on and on. And that is indeed true. But when we look at how Jesus describes greatness in the Gospels, he has something else in mind. The answer is found in Mark chapter 10 in a discussion between Jesus and his disciples when Jesus says this. The text says, And Jesus called, to them, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus compares popular notions of greatness in his day, and honestly in our day as well, this idea of exercising power over others through a display of force, this idea of coercing others or using others to get what you want, getting people to serve you, on and on and on. That's, that's not what Jesus has in mind when he thinks of greatness. Jesus instead says that greatness is found 
and service. And then he specifies for him and for his earthly ministry, for him, greatness is most fully displayed in the fact that he gives his life up as a ransom for those who are far from God. We see this same thing displayed in Philippians chapter 2 when it says this, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That day when Gabriel appeared to Mary, the angel declared that Jesus will be great, and we see that greatness fully on display at Christmas. The, the very thought that Jesus, that God himself would come to earth as a helpless small baby displays his greatness and his glory. And at Christmas, we see this plan of God, and we can readily confess along with the angel that he indeed is great. The second thing that we see from this text, the angel Gabriel mentions not only that he will be great, but that he will also be called the Son of the Most High, or to use more familiar term, he will be called the Son of God. Perhaps the greatest mystery of Christmas is that the Creator has entered into creation. J.I. Packer is a famous theologian, and he describes the importance of the incarnation. He describes the importance of, of the Christmas story, and he says that it is the greatest mystery of the entire Christian faith. He puts it this way. In fact, the real difficulty of believing Christianity is true does not lie with Good Friday's message of crucifixion or Easter Sunday's message of resurrection, but instead in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man, that he was as truly and fully divine as he was human. Once again, and once we grant that Jesus was divine, it becomes unreasonable to find difficulty believing the rest of Christianity. The incarnation is itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament claims. Have you ever considered the angel's words or Christmas in light of this? That Christmas may not celebrate the most important moment uh, in Christian history. That would be Easter when salvation is won with Jesus' victorious resurrection. But without a doubt, the Christmas story is the most mysterious part of the Bible. And if you can accept this good news of of Christmas, that Jesus really and truly is the Son of God who becomes man, then we can echo the words of Paul when he stood on trial before Herod Agrippa when he says this, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? The Apostle Paul reminds us that the wonder of Christmas is that Jesus is fully God, but also is fully divine, that he is the Son of God in the flesh. He writes this, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
the angel declares that Jesus will be called Son of God. And we see this truth on display, and it is this truth on which the entire Christian faith hinges. The thought that God himself would come to earth to save his creation is an unfathomable mystery, and it is the true marvel of Christmas. At Christmas, we see the plan of God, and we can readily rejoice along with the angels and say, He is indeed the Son of God. The angel Gabriel says, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And then he says one more thing, not only that He will be the Son of God, but that He also will be the Son of David. Let's read our text again. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Consider this final promise, that he will be called the son of David. In light of the overarching story of the Bible, the entire Bible is one story. It is a story of longing. It is a story of expectation for God to fulfill his promise, to to make all things right, to rescue his creation from death and evil that has enslaved it. And the Bible begins with God's plan from the very beginning, this plan of a perfect creation where God creates all things good, and that includes men and women. And God has a special place for humanity over all of creation. God has given them his image, and God has chosen man and woman not to just exist, but to rule alongside of him. Imagine that for a second. That God has created you with a purpose, and that purpose is to rule alongside of God. This is a purpose that's not seen anywhere else. In the other religions, and ancient religions, uh, the, the humanity was created with one purpose, and that was to be a slave to God, to do whatever the gods wanted for them. Today, in, in the secular explanation of our origins, it says that we're just a cosmic accident. That we are one giant mistake and that there is no purpose to your life. And yet the Bible says something different. It says that there is a purpose to your life. That God created you to be a king or a queen alongside of him. In fact, the beginning of the Bible refers to Adam as God's son. And he doesn't refer to Adam as a divine person, but instead as a place of special status. That God looks at him as his child to rule alongside of him. But of course, Adam and Eve, as we all know, reject God's plan for them. They don't want to share the throne with God. They want the throne for themselves. And this ugly rebellion of creation against God begins that should have led to to our condemnation forever. But God is not only a just king, he's also a good, gracious, merciful king. And so immediately after the rebellion of creation, immediately after the the pinnacle of God's creation, men and women rebel against God, God says, I have a plan. I will make everything right, and I promise that I will make everything right. It's not going to happen through Adam and Eve, but it is going to happen through a son of Adam and Eve. And immediately after we have this promise of a son who is going to come and make everything right, we have the first sons born to Adam and Eve. And if you're reading Genesis in this light, you you begin to wonder, are they the promised ones? 
Are they the ones that have been promised who, who will make all things right, who will restore God's creation? Are Cain and Abel the ones who will make everything right? And of course, the answer is no. One is a murderer. The other one is slain by his brother's hands. But then Eve has another son. His name is Seth. And the question again raises, uh, is this the one who is going to, to make things right, to, to wind back the clock and make everything good again? And then Genesis 4 and 5 make sure we realize that the answer is no. There is this repetition over and over and over in those chapters of death. 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 It is not Seth who will save creation. It is not Seth's son. It is not his grandson, his great-grandson. It is not anyone that we see in the book of Genesis. Creation languishes in death and decay. And the same is true for, for Noah and his sons. The same is true for Abraham. Abraham is said to, to be a blessing to the nations, but he has more in common with Adam and his faults. And we see that he also is not worthy. But then there is good news. God promises Abraham that he will have a son in his old age, a promised son in his old age. And we begin to think, here at last, we may think this is the, the one who is, is going to make everything right. But then Isaac is born and he has more in common with his dad. He's not worthy. He's the same mix of faithfulness and sin. And the same is true for his promised son, Jacob. And the same is true for Jacob's sons, the tribes of Israel. You see, Genesis tells us the story of son after son after son who has failed to be counted worthy of God's plan to save creation from the sin that enslaves it. And the same is true in, in the book of Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, that we see Israel is called God's son, and yet they need someone to save them. They're in no place to save anyone. They are not worthy to save anyone, to redeem anything. And centuries pass, and then we get to God's chosen king, King David. David is later described as a man who is after God's own heart. And just like his ancestor Adam, David is actually referred to as God's son in the Psalms. And yet, David is flawed. He will not save anyone. He will not restore God's creation. And yet, he's given a promise. It is his son who is the promised one. It is his son who will restore God's kingdom. But then we meet Solomon. And we quickly see, well, that's not the son that God had in mind, nor is Solomon's son, nor his grandson, nor his great-grandson, nor any of the kings of the Old Testament. All of them are failures. History is filled with failures. It is filled with the unworthy, but the promise remains. A son of David will one day come. A son who is worthy, unlike anyone who has come before him. And before we get to Luke chapter 1, can you just feel the weight of expectation here? Can you feel this oppressive burden of failure after failure after failure? Does your heart begin to long deeply for the coming son of David, the one who will make all things right? And then we get to Gabriel's words in Luke chapter 1. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. At long last, we see that he is here, that the one who will succeed where everyone else has failed is finally here. This one alone is worthy of all of humanity. The book of Revelation gives us a glimpse of what this means from heaven's perspective. Revelation chapter 5 says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And heaven sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This Christmas, remember that the promised one has come and rejoice. This Christmas, we rejoice at the eternal plan of God bringing us salvation. This Christmas, we rejoice at the greatness of Jesus on display and his humility by taking on flesh. We rejoice at the mystery of Christmas, that God has come to earth. We rejoice at the long last that we have found the one who is worthy. At long last, we have found the faithful, promised Son. At long last, we have found the one who will redeem God's creation. At long last, we rejoice at the arrival of our King. Let's pray. God, we do rejoice that you are worthy in a way that none of us are, that you are great in a way that none of us are, that you, the Son of God, took on flesh, that you, the Son of David, were faithful to your Father. And you have brought us back to God. Thank you, Jesus. You are the reason we gather. You are the reason we celebrate. You are the reason we sing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.